0: From the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio, this is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yaroshevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra.
1: And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, manager of education and community engagement.
0: Welcome to season three of our podcast. We are so glad you could join us.
1: This podcast navigates issues that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experiences and as we discuss these often avoided topics.
0: We are joined today by Jerry Lynn Johnson. Founder and Artistic Director of the Black Pearl Chamber Orchestra in Philadelphia. For over a decade, Black Pearl has been a model for diversity, equity, and inclusion in the orchestral industry as a racially diverse ensemble performing for a racially diverse audience, something that the rest of us in the industry have only recently begun to talk about. Jerry's career has taken her all over the world where she has become the first black woman to ever conduct some of the world's leading orchestras. She is also the founder of DEI arts consulting, which helps arts organizations to better serve the diverse communities in which we exist. Jerry Lynn Johnson, welcome to orchestrating change.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you both of you for inviting me to be part of the podcast
0: it is a pleasure to have you
1: yeah it is such a pleasure to have you i just kind of want to get to know a little bit more about you tell us about yourself you know what has your life been like that's led you to your awesome career that you have now
2: uh well you know i think whenever you ask any conductor that you, you get you know as many different answers as there are conductors you know i think uh people think it's there's like one path to to doing this and i think Um, we all find our own way, uh, to, and through the podium to, to our careers. And, um, I, you know, I, I'm a pianist by training. Uh, I started piano when I was four and just, you know, loved it. I, I originally played by ear and it was very hard for my teacher to get me to learn, to read music because I could hear things and pick it up so quickly. Those of you who are, you know, played by ear can can empathize, (laughs)
0: um, right,
2: right. Um, and so, um. And then I had some, was very fortunate. I had some uh, wonderful friends of my family, my parents, who took me to my first orchestra concert, and um, I, I will never forget it. At age seven, it was um, it was the Minnesota Orchestra, and it was Neville Mariner who was music director at the time. And um, it was some Beethoven symphony. I don't exactly remember which one, uh, but I just was in love with with what I was seeing on stage, what I was hearing. And, And, you know, my young eyes kind of, you know, told me, okay, um, I don't see a piano on this stage. So if I want to make this music myself, I guess I have to do what the person on the stage is doing. And that's the person who's conducting all of the other instruments that are making the music. And so that was was why I wanted to become a conductor is seeing that and I was fortunate enough to be able to conduct my college orchestra at at Wellesley and, and study a bit there um and then uh, I went to the University of Chicago because I I felt I really um I didn't want to go to conservatory because I felt that for me that was just too narrow of course wonderful amazing training but again I I really wanted a very deep grounding in music history and theory and so I got my master's um in that from the University of Chicago um and and I think that has stood me in good stead and so again Lots of people go to conservatories, they become assistant conductors and then associate and, you know, there's the ranks that people go up. Some people have a solo career on their instrument um, and then come around to conducting um, as another a love of music making that, that they have. Um, and so mine was um, a little less traditional in graduate school. I um, I would offer my services for free for all of the composers who were there at the music department, really really amazing cohorts of composers have have come through the University of Chicago, all all mentored and studied with people like Johnny and Shulamit Ron um, uh, and and some others who were there, just really wonderful, creative, beautifully crafted music at a very high level and people were doing a lot of interesting things with electronic music and, and they all needed conductor and nobody had any money and I needed the experience and so it was just a perfect fit. Um, and so I got to, um, unlike most conductors, I think I kind of developed my chops, not on Mozart and Beethoven and Brahms and Bach, but on contemporary music on mixed meters and quarter tones and aleatoric music and <laughs> chance and, and, you know, a graphic notation and all these kinds of things. And, um, it was just a wonderful experience because it taught me as a conductor, um, to not rely on either MIDI or on recordings to learn scores. I, I really, it really forces you when there are no recordings, mm-hmm. when there is no MIDI, you know, it, it forces you to really sit down with the music and learn it line by line, instrument by instrument, and and put that score together. It also forces you to learn very quickly how to read music off the page and get a sense for the entire scope and structure of a piece. Um, and, and so I that I think has, has shaped uh, also how I work with Beethoven and, and Mozart. Um, I, I, of course, grew up, like all of us, listening to, you know, our favorite recordings, um, and and that's how we all fall in love with the music. But but for me, um, the pathway was a little bit of, uh, a lot of self-reliance, um, a lot of really hard study um, about the composer, about the historical context and the musical structures, um, and and wanting to, because I I admired and and wanted to emulate um the, the, the music making of people like George Zell and and, and Schulte and Carrion and Beethoven and, and going back like Klemperer and 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 all these people, I, I I wanted to have um the, the authority to develop my own interpretations.
0: You got a degree from Wellesley and then in music history and theory from Chicago. Did you ever at any point formally study conducting in an <laughs> academic setting?
2: <laughs> I mean, I had a conducting class, you know, at, at Wellesley in undergrad, and I had a conducting class at the University of Chicago. Um, I, I did go to Aspen Music Festival. Um, I went to some other like summer workshops and then overseas workshops and those kinds of things. but. You know I, I didn't do like a formal conservatory sort of style of of conducting and and i think you know there's 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 benefits and and probably drawbacks um, of of my training in in that regard probably um, you, you know just the concentrated way that that the conservatory would do it but but also um, you know conducting isn't something that you can learn by reading a book or following a recording you actually have to do it And so all of my experience as a conductor was practical about what worked and what didn't, how to put a rehearsal together, um, how to guide musicians when they themselves maybe sometimes don't always have the technique to understand what the composer wants, how to help them through those moments. And so you it's it's a very much a learning by doing. And I think people don't understand that for conductors, you know, when you're a violinist or flautist, you can you can practice all you want on your instrument. And so by the time you're 21, you can amass thousands and thousands and thousands of hours on your instrument. Whereas a conductor, our instrument is a group of 80 people. And so to the extent that you can get 80 people in a room is the extent to which you can actually practice, um, your, your music making. So, um, you know, I think for all the conservatory training, unless you're getting tons and tons and tons of podium time, there's really only one way to, to learn conducting and that's to do it.
0: Of course. And I, of course, definitely can, can agree with you from experience. (laughs) (laughs) Now you wanted to be, you thought about being a conductor from a young age and to any young person, the world is this idealistic place, but at what point did you first realize the musicians on the stage and the conductors I see on the podium don't Look like me?
2: Oh, I mean, I always knew that. I mean, I'm not <laughs> blind. I, I mean, I could see them, yeah. but, that's not, um, but it, it wasn't something that deterred me or made me think I, I can't do this. And, and part of that is weirdly, probably a function of my upbringing. We, we moved a lot with my dad's job. And so I think part of that unmooring from, um, my peers on a regular basis. I had no sense of like societal norms or Mm. what was expected of me, or, you know, kind of having to comply with other people's expectations because there weren't any, we were moving like every year or every two years. And so it was always me making up rules wherever I was. And so it just didn't occur to me that because I didn't see anyone who looked like me, that was any kind of barrier or any kind of problem. I just. I, I wanted to do music and, and oddly, because we moved so much music was the one constant that I had. It was mm-hmm. something that no one could ever take me away from me and that would never leave me um, and could go with me wherever I went. So it, it, you know, I was very bonded, I think, with music for that reason.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting because yeah you you said i wasn't blind you know like i could definitely see there were differences and and because of that you've been like the first we kind of mentioned it in the in the intro you've been the first you know black woman to do a lot of things before you at uh, conducting wise um and in 2005 you won the taki Alsup conducting fellowship which was the first time that a black woman had won that which was an international conducting prize so i'm interested to kind of what is it like to be the first to do something. What is what is that experience like or did you even register in the moment?
2: I I didn't register in the moment. And and I have to say it, it is always people reflecting these things back to me and asking me to reflect on them when I begin to realize these things. Like I, I you know, I think when when you're a conductor and you're just idolizing, you know, again all the recordings that we've listened to growing up and and over and over again. Um, until we just, we know each interpretation of each conductor with every orchestra for the pieces that we love the most. And, and for me, you know, all I could think about was how much work I had to do because I wanted to be great. I want to do these things. Um, and so I, I couldn't stop to think about these things because, um, I was just too busy working, too busy (laughs) striving. Um, and, and that's a problem. I would probably tell the younger me, which is a question I think you guys are going to get, I would probably <laughs> tell the younger me like stop and appreciate what has happened. Drink it in and acknowledge it. Um, and I have to remind myself of that um, even to this day. Um, there's always going to be work to be done. Um, there's always striving for perfection. Um, but to give yourself pause, Um, and that positive energy, um, uh, to, to drink it all in and and create a perspective for yourself, um, that will guide you through both the wonderful moments as well as the difficult ones. So, um, they they sometimes express shock and awe about these details and, you know, through their shock and I'm like, yeah, that is pretty weird that that's that, that like, why did that take so long? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I suppose, um, you, you know, I, am I'm, I'm proud of things that I've done. I don't hold myself in some special regard of, you know, oh, I'm the first and in these kinds of things because, um, there will be so many others.
1: That's um, a, that's a really cool way to think about
2: that.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned, uh, that you didn't think much when you were younger about, well, I don't see anybody like me up there, but that doesn't mean I can't do this. However, once you actually got into the profession, have you found difficulties with the flat, the fact that you are a black woman conductor? Uh,
2: Yes. Um, I think, and again, these are all, um. Uh, most of these difficulties stem from other people's problems with me being an African-American conductor. These, And so I'm always having to manage other people's difficulties with this, which creates a lot of exhaustion on my part, um, because I, these are not things that I am burdened with. You know, I used to get the question all the time, what is it like being a Black woman conductor? I don't know. I This is... I've never been an Asian male conductor, so I have nothing to compare it to. So what is it like? It's just life. It's just me. It's just what I do. Um, and so the, the issues for me have, like I said, been managing other people's issues with me. One of the reasons I started Black Pearl was because an orchestra had told me as a finalist for the music director position that I did not look like what their audience expected the conductor to look like, which is why they couldn't hire me. Mm. And so that's what I mean. It's been other people's problems with me as an African-American woman that I have had to negotiate um, in order to simply uh, do my job. Um, I don't believe audiences have as hard a time with that. As perhaps people in the industry have a hard time with it. And then those people in the industry are projecting those problems, I think, onto the audience. And I think that's an argument that can be made for a lot of things, like contemporary music, um, like doing a lot of these things that they think, oh, our audience will never go for that. Well, have you tried it? Have you done it? Like maybe they would be more willing and, and interested in this. And then audiences change over time and people's interests change over time. And so um, orchestras, I think would do well to adapt to, um, the contemporary, uh, uh, societal norms in which they
1: find themselves. Making the audience the scapegoat for our own, um, misconceptions in the industry. That's, um, that's really interesting.
0: Would yeah. you say that it's mainly management at the management and board level, as opposed to actual musicians in the orchestra? That where you found the most difficulty?
2: Oh, I, look. So let me be clear. That was a pretty isolated uh, <laughs> example, and 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 I and I can say that because it was so unusual that this person was honest with me about that. Um, um, because obviously, discriminating <laughs> against someone on the basis of race and gender is illegal. So the fact that he trusted me with that information was. In, I mean, it was very painful to hear at the time, but also incredibly insightful. And so I, I I don't know where the problems always lie in orchestras. I think there's a combination of factors that people, that people need to acknowledge. Um, there is no magic bullet for these things. And so I, I can't say, oh, board and management are always, you know, the, the people kind of behind the ball on this. There, there's a number of of factors that go into, um, how these decisions get made, why these decisions get made, who is making these decisions, um, that, that could stand to be really examined and, and addressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now I, I, I can't lay this at, at any one party's feet. It, it's really, um, we are all participating in this system. And I mean, all of us.
1: Along that train of thought of, you know change needs to happen in the, in the industry. You've seen it need to happen. You went and created your own orchestra. You created Black Pearl Chamber Orchestra. And I'm wondering, can you tell us a little bit about this ensemble and what led you to create it and what was actually the push behind its creation?
2: Sure. Well, that that story that I just told you about the orchestra saying to me that you don't look like what our audience expects the conductor lo- to look like, that, that was, I think, the seminal moment that, that basically shifted my perspective on who I was and what I was doing and why I was doing it. Um, you know, I had just assumed that, look, I've conducted youth orchestras, community orchestras, cham- professional chamber orchestras, uh, professional chamber operas, you know, uh, light opera. I, I've done all kinds of, you know, professional orchestras a- around the world. I've, I've done a lot at a pretty high level. And none of that mattered because I was a black woman. And that realization um, shifted my perspective on, you know if I work really hard, if I'm very cooperative and I do a good job and I'm a good team player and I'm a, I'm a good leader and I care about my musicians and, and I'm a good worker, that that will get me ahead in the industry. And what that told me is that it really didn't matter. Um, the quality of my work in the industry, it was basically, um, you know, what did I look like? Was I sellable as people's stereotype of what a conductor should look like? And so I started Black Pearl, uh, because of that and, and was very conscientious about the fact that the orchestra would be a model and, um, a working experiment in addressing these issues. We are based in Philadelphia. Um, uh, and so we are in a sweet spot, if you will, of training the world's greatest musicians. I thought, what better place to combat the idea that um, diversity and artistic excellence are inversely related than here in Philadelphia? And so all of my musicians um, have either taught at or graduated from Curtis, Juilliard, one, one of those three or more institutions and are currently either doing so as well. Um, oh, they were all graduated, and the nobody's students. Um, uh, and they are from all over the world, um, backgrounds and ethnicities. Um, we have Chinese American, Korean American, Japanese American, um, a number of South American countries, um, and Latin American countries, uh, various European ethnicities, um, and, and African Americans and Afro-Caribbeans, um, uh, pe- people really from all over. I thought that was important for two reasons. One is, um, you know, in the Northeast Corridor, it's just a very diverse part of the country. And so I, I, I felt, um, if we were going to, um, build new audiences for classical music, which is one of the things that many organizations struggle with. The best way to do that was to show that diversity in the orchestra. And that was really, for me, an easy conclusion to draw. I mean, you know, when I started, it was 2008, uh, sorry, like 2008, 2007, 2008 timeframe. And at that point, you know, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were vying to be the democratic nominees to be candidate for president what you saw when barack obama was the nominee was the highest african-american voter turnout in, in history and so what that demonstrates is when people see representation at the highest level that it is possible that there is no glass ceiling um then they are more willing to participate and so we I'm, this is shameful. This is a secret that I'm telling all your podcast listeners. We are terrible at marketing and PR. I never tell anyone about our concerts, like, you know, I, I, it's so terrible. We need to do more, we need to do better. I acknowledge this, but because of who I am and who we were, we sell out all the time just through word of mouth of people telling their friends, telling their church um um constituencies telling uh, you know other people at their social clubs and at their schools and various other ways that people engage just through word of mouth that this orchestra exists and, and they all come to support it. and so that is that is how we built our audience very organically through this just simply the relationship of you are us we are you, you now we have instruments in our hand and that really is the only difference but, but there is no real difference between the orchestra and the community that we serve. And that was very deliberate. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're doing it at an incredibly high level. Um, again, that, that really is the yeah. only way that that works. Uh, I wish there were other ways. Um, but if you want a loyal, a dedicated reciprocal relationship with diverse audiences, um, there has to be genuine inclusion and belonging at every level of the organization. Otherwise it's just window dressing and they will see through it.
0: So, uh, this brings up an, an interesting point from our perspective here at the Canton symphony, because we, uh, in a year, we will be rene- renegotiating our union contract and we're hoping that we can get a provision in there that will allow us to make our stage more diverse To take some deliberate steps to do this. But in the meantime, we at least decided this year that we would have at least one piece by a woman or person of color on every program, a a composition by a minority composer, a non-white male on every program. I know you don't think it matters nearly as much as what people see on stage, but how do you think this? factors in to drawing new audiences?
2: I think first of all, I, th- that sounds lovely. I, I, um, and I, I let me, let me backtrack. I, I don't think it like what you programming doesn't matter at all. I, I, so it, it's, it's every, every way that you can demonstrate, um, an awareness of the existence of others, um, and acknowledge, um, excellence in others is always important. Um, I suppose, What I would wonder if I were an audience member is why are you including those works and how are you including those works? Simply plopping something on a program just to check a box is not really inclusion. When Black Pearl would do uh, Black History Month concerts, uh, people were like, well, why are you doing Brahms um, and Dvorak on a Black History Month concert? Well, there's a reason we were really telling the story about Henry Fecker Burley, who is a, a gentleman out of Erie, Pennsylvania, who, um, which I suppose we call sort of an ethnomusicologist, if, if you want to put that label, you know, back in the day, that's not what they call themselves, but he collected a lot of Negro spirituals and all these kinds of things, and, and he had contact with Dvorak while he was in America, and Dvorak uh, was mentored by Brahms, and so there is this connection between these three gentlemen, And so there, you know, there's some debate, you know, in musicological circles about the influence of of Burleigh and and Dvorak Nine in the the, the Largo movement of that, of course. But, but, you know, there is some, some evidence to suggest that there is some kind of association there. And so the inclusion of that one Black composer on the program was not just to slap a black composer on a program and check a box. It was about creating a much fuller and richer understanding of the fabric of music history by including people who had always been there and putting them in this historical context. And so it's not about history or like people like to say her story or black history or whatever history, it's about the story. It's about making sure that all of the people included in the story are being talked about. And so, you know what I'm saying? So one composer here, one composer there, that's great. What is the point? What is the context within which these people are? Otherwise, there's a danger of, of perhaps um, lapsing into performative uh, diversity in, in that regard. Again creating a sense of belonging is is what is there and so um simply uncovering these people to say we've done this um needs to be done in a way that that says that we acknowledge that these people have belonged all throughout we have not acknowledged them we did not know about them that's why i'm saying i never like to say i'm the first black to do anything Mm -hmm. there may be people we just don't know about um how do we include their stories and show how they have belonged in history this this whole time. Um, and and then once you begin to acknowledge people's history, people's inclusions, people's stories, that, that's how you begin to bring people into this, I think in a very authentic way. And then it does become a tool for building that relationship with, with communities.
1: I really like the way that you just, just described forming a concert and thinking about it even deeper. Cause I think a lot of concerts that I've gone to um at various orchestras even here are like the theme that connects all the pieces on the concert whatever those are is almost it's like a you know like we have a concert coming up called planet's odyssey right so it's every everything all the pieces on that concert have something to do with the planets and stars outer space outer space right um which is a great way to program a concert but also i feel like that's how do we take that deeper which is the you know what you just said how do we then take all of these composers, all these concerts, and how do we show it in a, like a, a deeper way? And maybe not every concert has to be that way. Some concerts can just be concerts about space, which is very fun. Um, <laughs> but yeah. some things can go a little deeper and that's, you know, a really Why are we having Quinn Mason on our November, you know, why are we, you know, having Jesse Montgomery? Well, it's called starburst. So it goes with the space theme. Um, but you know, I think that's a really interesting question to ask ourselves moving forward with the way that we program our music, because it can get performative or we can tokenize something really easily, um, with the best intentions and still make that mistake.
2: And I, and I, I I think. You know, it's also important to understand that you, you can always take a fresh look mm. at the composers that people already love. Mm. Um, you know, uh, Tchaikovsky, um, was, uh, was a gay man who had to live a very closeted life and it was very painful. And so, you know, people don't maybe know about that. And so there, there are just ways of, again, thinking about you know, the, the, the the war horses, the the workhorse pieces that we all know and love and everybody, you know, yay, trike five and trike six and all these things, but to really take a deeper dive into who these great composers were as human beings and, and look at them, not as this kind of, I call like a hagiography of like these saints of classical music. And we just, you know, tell the lives of the saints. And there were these, you know, whatever people that they were deep, rich, complicated human beings to look at. And acknowledge the anti-semitism of Wagner even as we love some really beautiful music that he wrote this man was deeply problematic but like to be honest about these things and to have these conversations I mean I think again diversity equity and inclusion means a lot of things not just about racial inclusion those mm-hmm. kinds of things Let, let's include all of this information in the discussion um about our- about politics, about who we are as a society, mm. um, these composers were not separate from that. They did not, they themselves did not stand aside from these things. I mean, look at Beethoven three, crossed out Napoleon's name when he declared himself emperor is like, he's horrible. I'm out, you know, so they were themselves very political. And so I think we can include them in these conversations as we are reexamining our artistic and, and, and political values at this mm. time.
1: That, I love that. I, um, and it's, I, you bring up Wagner, which is so funny. It, it's funny to me now looking back as his wedding march and then Mendelssohn's wedding march get used so often and <laughs> Mendelssohn was Jewish <laughs> and it's just, you know, I, the irony of that situation always, always, struck me. always the, struck me. A lot of times. Always struck me.
0: The, the, bride walks into Men? the church to here comes the bride and walks uh, out <laughs> back down the aisle to the, the Mendelssohn yeah, wedding march. Yeah.
1: yeah. But, um. Yeah. I think it's interesting. We've kind of talked about this a little bit with the way that Black Pearl deals with social justice and racial equity, but it kind of leads in that and like these topics in classical music and how, besides just these very intentional programs and and the diversity on the stage, what other ways do you see your organization talking about social justice and actually being on the forefront of that specifically in classical music?
2: I think there's lots of ways that that art can participate in in that discussion actively um in, in in racial and social justice and all these kinds of things um and and lots of artists do it in different ways some composers write pieces about certain things to raise awareness so there's all kinds of ways i think for art to participate it, it becomes a much more difficult conversation with arts institutions how do institutions participate in that and so you know, just Black Pearl's existence as an organization that hires on a regular and in ongoing basis, um, artists of color who you don't see working anywhere else becomes an issue of racial equity and justice. The fact that these people are, are, you know, for whatever reasons, um, you know, not in other orchestras in the region, uh, becomes an issue of, of racial justice and, and equity. And where we perform, uh, the way that we perform, uh, the venues in which we perform, um, we, I don't, uh, unless it's a sponsored event or a, a specifically public event that someone is presenting us as part of, I don't actually believe in doing concerts for free. A lot of what we do is in the, the way that we um, have just kind of Melded or I should say blurred the lines between the audience and the and the orchestra. Um, we won um, our first Knight Arts Challenge grant, I, I, I think is, is Knight in Canton or are they in Columbia, or is it Cincinnati? I know they op- Oh, they're in Akron. I believe Knight operates in Akron. And so part of the challenge was for organizations and individuals to work very hard to find new donors, new sources of income to make the sorts of change that these innovative projects were supposed to catalyze into kind of more long-term sustainable general operating. Now that's not the way it worked for most organizations, but that is the way that it worked for us, just because as a working model sort of format or or business model, we, uh, we, we don't have a 52 week season um, everything we do is geared toward this mission of diversity, equity, inclusion, um, creating new audiences, innovative formats and those kinds of things. And so this was just kind of how we operated anyway. So our first project that we won for was something called I-, I Conduct. It was just a very simple idea. I took the idea that I don't look like what it, the audience expects a conductor to look like, and I just decided I was going to make everyone into a conductor. And so we would just go out and take batons. And we would do, I think the first time we did it, we did Beethoven five, um, in four locations around the city. City Hall, the Mann Center for the Performing Arts, uh, we were the first orchestra to perform at the Barnes Foundation, very honored by that. Um, I'm trying to think we're the fourth place. Oh, at the Kimmel Center, at the Kimmel Center. Um, and we did Beethoven five at every location. The idea was that people would have an expectation. Oh, Beethoven five is coming back. And if they missed it at one, they could find us at another. Um, and then we would do a movement of it and then people would come up and we, they would get a free conducting lesson with me and the orchestra. And it was so much fun because, you know, little kids would come up, old people come up, one guy who, uh, you know, had one leg amputated came up with his crutches and he came up and conducted. I mean, we just got all kinds of amazing people coming up and doing this. And my favorites, um, you know, the kids were always a lot of fun, but my favorite was one guy who was just a classical music I just loved, you know, everything. And so he came up when we were at the Kimmel Center and he was so funny. He says, now I like the Roger Norrington tempo for Beethoven 5, you got it, take it. And he gets up there, you know, the opening of Beethoven 5. And of course he can't make the orchestra go. And he turns around and he looks at me, after, you know, I, I, I get, you know, given him the thing, he says, why is this so hard? He's like, it's so easy for you. I don't understand why I can't do it. Well, you know, I am a professional. Um, I kind of do know what, like, I'm not just up here waiting. Like you do realize like I'm doing things and the musicians are like, yes, it's hard and this is real. And so I think. People began to understand as they came up with the orchestra, that, that this isn't this automatic, oh, the orchestra just plays and we're just waving our arms and there's no connection. And also they understood that I wasn't allowing the orchestra to take it easy on them. And so that respect I had, like I, t- and specifically I told the orchestra, you cannot sound beautiful. I know that this is going to kill you as artists and perfectionists, but I want you to sound terrible so that these people understand the discipline and vision that it takes to make your body perform music silently so that other people can understand and interpret it. And so you can see as people kind of went on, they're like, oh, and then they, you know, once they, they learn to control their bodies a little bit, the, you know, the sense of accomplishment. And so people, you know, they love that. I mean, when would you ever, see that before then so you know once we had all this great success of course philadelphia orchestra did it a few years later and all this kind of stuff and like and so then people started doing all this stuff but like we were like yeah um you can get up and conduct our orchestra which would have been unheard of like unless you were a major donor who from the street would be allowed to just get up and conduct your orchestra and so again from a symbolic standpoint you know that baton is like a king's scepter in their hand, ruling the world of the orchestra, like Mahler said, you know, a symphony should be like the world; it should contain everything. Well, Black Pearl is like an orchestra should be like the world; it should contain everyone. And so, to give an ordinary citizen that kind of power was people like, what is she doing? Like, this is just craziness. And so, that that kind of idea that art can be a model for participatory democracy, again. We don't talk specifically about racial equity and social justice. We simply allow the projects in the work to affect people where they are, and and let it change them through the experience of simply doing these fun and exciting things.
0: All right, I have a question that this this leads into
1: <laughs> about, like, I'm ready. about yeah? Black
0: Pearl. <laughs> no, so uh, it's this sort of a two part question is. Black Pearl, obviously, as you mentioned, is not, it's not a 52 week season. It's not a full-time orchestra. Neither for that matter is the Canton symphony, but does it in other ways resemble operationally the way that most part-time per service orchestra, professional orchestras would operate and on extension of that, do you have a staff and a board of directors? And a, if yes, is are those as diverse as the orchestra?
2: So I'm going to work in reverse order of your question. Yes. So, yes, we do have a staff and a board. And yes, everyone is diverse. So, 75% of our board is people of color. Our staff is 50% people of color. It's a very small staff. It's me and like I have an orchestra librarian. But, you know, so. It's a small staff, and I also have, you know, volunteers and people who do stuff on a, on a per kind of service basis from a a, a logistics standpoint that, you know, we don't have a full-time season. They don't need to be with us full-time, but I pay them well for when they are with us. Um, And then in terms of the structure, so, uh, you know, people are contracted with the orchestra, but we do not have a collective bargaining agreement. So it it, it affords me certain advantages. So um, I can hire whomever I want.
0: Mm -hmm. Of course, of course, that makes a lot of sense. Now, something else that's been talked about is Mm -hmm. uh, Flo Janani, who is... uh, uh, She works for the United Way of Canton, and she started a program in which she trains people of color to serve on nonprofit boards here in the Canton area. And she said that a common thing that the current boards, the not particularly diverse current boards, assume is that... People who don't look like the current board aren't going to be able to make a financial commitment to a board. And I would guess your experience that you can tell all of our listeners is through experience that obviously is not the case.
2: That's not the case. So let me be very clear. I, I, I didn't just start Black Pearl not knowing how businesses work, Mm. (laughs) you know, my, So, uh, which is kind of how I started DEI Arts Consulting. Like, how do you know how to consult? Like, eh, I know how to do a lot of things. But the the point is, um, I knew my demographic. So from a historical standpoint of classical music, Philadelphia and the African-American community here has a very long history of creating music clubs and had lots of composers and people participated and and people who've gathered together in what they call, you know, a number of fraternities and, and sororities, uh, um, in order to kind of uh, you, you know, like, like Elks clubs and, and, and Kiwanis and, and those kinds of things, service clubs, but for African-Americans, because of course things were segregated back then. And so classical music has always been a part of that fabric. And so when you're in, you know, what is it? The fifth or sixth largest, city? sometimes Philadelphia slips, it's like fifth or fourth, fifth, anyway, it's in there. It it's is the top five.
0: in the top ten, For and sure. it ha- it's one of it two is. cities in the country that has been in the top ten largest cities at every U.S. census in the uh, country's you. history. <laughs>
2: I appreciate that information. Thank you so much. Um, but you know, it's it's a large and very diverse community with a, a long history. Again, in the Northeast Corridor, with a long history in in our our nation's uh, development. And so over time, these these groups have formed and classical music was was a part of that, the performance as well as the appreciation um, uh, of that. You have to think Marian Anderson was, was from here. And so there is a long love of classical music. And, and just as there is uh, you know, wealth in, in every community, there is wealth in the African-American community here. So I cannot speak to Canton just because I don't know the Canton community, but I'm willing to bet that there are probably wealthy African-Americans who would, you know, might be interested in serving on your board. Now, whether they say yes or no is a different thing. And who asks them is incredibly important and making the sale as to why they should. Um, those are all different issues, but I, I knew my community, you know, there's a very common underlying assumption of poverty when it comes to people of color and that the idea of doing quote unquote outreach, which by the way, we don't call our community engagement activity, we call it in reach because we literally let people reach into the orchestra, um, you know, the, the mindset of that is that it's some kind of social good that people are doing. It's, it's serving underserved communities through, through this music. Now, whether or not those underserved communities want that is a whole other issue. Um, but, but But the assumption that that is the only purpose of community engagement is to serve underserved communities is based upon the assumption of poverty of people of color. And so unless and and until you remove that assumption, you're not going to be able to see potential donors of of, of any difference um, outside of the the ones who look like the ones you already have. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, all right. So if you wouldn't mind, uh, sharing with our audience, uh, maybe something that you would recommend that they listen to or read or engage with, um, just from your perspective as, um, it can have to do with this conversation or just something that you think they should know about as they're listening today.
2: Oh, wow. Um, you know, I, I read a really, you know, my reading list is just really weird and eclectic. You know, I was reading the, um, You know, Carl Jung's, uh, lectures about Kundalini yoga. That's a whole different thing. Um, but I think a really great book that really changed my perspective on things was a book by Dr. Robin D G Kelly, uh, called Freedom Dreams. And uh, Dr. Kelly is a professor of of African-American history and, uh, UCLA. Most, most people might know of him in the music industry, especially jazzers for his huge Thelonious Monk Mm. book. Um, that if you say this to any person who's a jazz, they're like, oh, they just uh, start just bowing. Like that book is just like their Bible about colonists monk. And so, um, the the book that he also wrote is called Freedom Dreams. Um, and it's just, it's a fun read. Now he is, he is an academic and it is very rich with references and history and all these kinds of things. So it is, it is dense, but it's also incredibly engaging because he talks about the way that African-Americans have symbolized and talked about and, and theorized about what freedom looks like from slavery all the way up into the modern times and the way that's been symbolized in art. And he talks a great deal about music and socialism and politics and how all of these things have played out in blues, in jazz, in gospel, in classical music. He talks about Paul Robeson and his role in his work. Um, and, and it's just a, just a wonderful, amazing read um, about the way that people have talked and sung about um, freedom and how, um, you know, how unions got formed and how the discussions of of class and race and gender and and the nature of work, um, the nature of equality, all kind of intersected with art, whether it be the visual arts or or music or poetry. Um, It's just a gorgeous, gorgeous book. And for me, and it it was really so so moving for me, uh, because one of the things he talked about, and it is great, um, in his scholarship is he always makes sure that the work of women in political movements is always highlighted and contextualized because you tend to, you know, kind of men have been doing this movement and women were kind of in the background, but no, like all these women doing all this work around equality and especially gender equality and the nature of work and socialism and capitalism and all these things, it's just a really fascinating book. And one of the things he talked about was that African-American women in particular, in, in the symbolism, you know, the kind of the most oppressed, um, kind of groups of people, they are, they, they were the ones who were always writing about the biggest tent in terms of freedom and democracy for everyone. So I re- I read this book and I was just, so deeply enlightened um, by all of these things in the work and it kind of put Black Pearl in perspective for me and and it just brought me to tears and so I emailed him I said Look, your book is awesome I'm such a huge fan. You know, he, this, it was just it was so moving to read about this and how it, it has impacted me in my life and my perspective on my work and he was so kind he wrote back he sent me his Thelonious Monk book, and he signed it and we, you know, and so now we're like, you know, he's just an amazing, amazing person, um, but I would I would recommend Freedom Dreams by Dr. Robin DG Kelly. Um, Just a brilliant, brilliant book.
0: So many orchestras now are talking about increasing the diversity on our stages, but the industry standard is the behind the screen audition, which is supposed to prevent us from making decisions on who plays in the orchestra based on what people look like, but we're sort of in a space now where we want To, we want to make a deliberate choice to make sure that our stages look more diverse. And these to me are totally at odds. How do, what ideas do you have for orchestras that are trying to reconcile these two competing forces?
2: Uh, well, I don't know that those, those two things are necessarily at odds. I mean, the Metropolitan Orchestra is relatively diverse amongst its peers, and it has a truly blind audition process. So those two things are very related. So I, 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 the first thing I would say is I think we can all acknowledge that the blind audition process is not really all that blind. I, I think there's some debate. Uh, you know, I think you can look at the, the article for the panel discussion I did with the League of American Orchestras with Afa Dworkin and, 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 you know, a number of other people that talk about it's not as blind as it could be. There's a number of ways a- around that blind uh, audition. Um, and so I think to have truly blind auditions, you will increase the diversity. Um, I think part of that is ensuring that the that the candidate pool, that the word is getting out to people uh, in jobs um in a timely manner and that that truly is equal that things don't get leaked in advance to people's friends uh and you know what i'm saying i mean that's what i'm saying like there's ways around the blind audition process that don't have anything to do with the way people look in terms of how information is disseminated who's getting the information when they're getting that information how much time they have to prepare for the audition versus someone who's getting the information a little bit further down the line. Um, there's just I- any number of ways to, to just make sure that it, that it is truly blind. And again, that doesn't have anything to do with, you know, race or ethnicity. That's just part of just really making sure, um, that these processes, um, at every step of the way are, are equitable for anyone coming through the audition process. So we don't audition people formally, like we don't have sit down behind a screen and people audition. Um, People do work with us on a probationary basis and then the group decides, um, yes, we like this person. No, we don't. More often than not, the reason why people are not kept in Black Pearl has nothing to do with their playing. Um, uh, and, And that's been important because, again, we also want people who are willing to engage with the community. We don't want people who are just going to sit on the stage and play their music and feel like the only part of their job is to do that. And that talking to people in the audience or doing education work is beneath them. Because I also don't have a collective bargaining agreement, I'm able to pay my musicians much more for education in relationship to their concert service work. And so for me, there is no difference. And so they don't get paid differently because, oh, it's a church gig, therefore it's less money or it's for kids, therefore it's less money. You get paid the same amount because all of these services are equally valuable to the organization and work is work. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's why I'm saying. It isn't just a matter of I'm having this dictatorial control about who I hire and fire and that kind of thing. It is a very much a group effort of who gets hired and and who is not um, re-invited back to play at Black Pearl. But it also allows me to be a lot more generous with the musicians in terms of how I pay them, um, especially during the pandemic, where I simply said, look, whatever that you're doing, if it's music related, um, I I will pay for it.
1: So just a couple more questions before we let you go here today. Um, I want to talk a little bit about DEI consulting um, and what led you, I'm going to kind of pack a bunch of questions into this, I think, but why you felt, why you formed it and kind of what what caused you to want to do this work? Like, what were the things that you were saying that you're like, nope, that's not right, nope, that's not right, um, that led you to get into this work and how have you been helping people understand maybe their misconceptions about what DEI work actually is in this field?
2: You know, I I created it because once Black Pearl got started, when I started, people weren't sure really what to make of it. Um, A lot of people didn't understand the mission. A lot of people assumed, oh, it's a diverse orchestra. Are Are they kids? You know, they just couldn't wrap their heads around what we were doing. Um, and so once they saw the audiences that we were drawing and how effortless it it was, and it wasn't necessarily effortless, but it was just more organic and natural. Um, then people all of a sudden wanted to know, how was I able to do it? How can you do this? And, And can we pick your brain? And people just wanted all my expertise and didn't want to pay for it. Nope, done. It's not happening. So it was just very simple like i'm going to just create a structure around this and if you want my expertise if you can pay you know all these wonderful other arts consulting firms who are brilliant and i have friends who are there great um and so that's really how it started and so you know just something here or there but nothing really big until the pandemic hit and i was like oh i cannot conduct and who knows when this is going to change brush off dei arts consulting (laughs) and here we go and it was like shooting fish in a barrel People, I mean, I live, I, there's no advertising. Again, I have a problem with advertising. I just, I'm terrible at self-promotion. This is very cathartic. I'm just terrible at it, but people would just email me like, Hey, can you help us with this? And so we, you know, we have a variety of people and not just within classical music, we have, you know, different uh, arts organizations across, you know, theater, dance, art museums, uh, cultural organizations, all kinds of things. But that's really how it, it it got started. And, you know, I will tell you, um, you know, one of the things I have to explain to people and, and that um, we have to get them to understand is that you have to stop looking at diversity, equity, inclusion as is, is a problem to solve, um, because that puts you in a particular mindset, like this is hard work, this is difficult, this is onerous, this is unpleasant. You have to view diversity, equity, inclusion as an opportunity. Um, and then you're m- more willing to walk into the changes that, that need to be made. But if you see this as a problem that needs to be dealt with, it's just like, oh, you know, pulling teeth and this is hard and it's going to be painful. And, you know, there's all kinds of painful things in life. Uh, but you know, giving birth is a painful thing, but you get this great baby afterwards. And so, you know, there's pain and then there's pain. So you want this to be the good kind of pain or something beautiful is coming out of it.
0: So Jerry, we ask. All of our guests on this podcast at the end of every episode, the same question, our podcast of course is called orchestrating change. So in a nutshell, how do we orchestrate change?
2: I would say conductors um, need to view themselves within their respective communities, wherever they are from the standpoint of a higher level of organization. In other words, you know, an orchestra is a collection of people that's led by a conductor. The orchestra, ideally in that community should function like the conductor in the community to orchestrate diversity, equity, and inclusion in the community. So rather than trying to create it within the organization by sucking resources from the community, they should serve as a convener and a leader and a visionary in creating that, not just for the orchestra, but for the entire community that they serve using music as the tool to do so. Does that make sense?
0: That's a unique and wonderful answer, I would say. (laughs)
1: Okay. Amazing. Well, I want to thank you so much. And you mentioned this earlier that you've, you talked with our orchestrating change leadership program that last summer, and, um, you've been such a wonderful person to talk to and learn more and I think anytime I hear you speak I think about something differently than I did before Uh, you have a very cool way of of kind of turning the way our perspectives is on our head and making us question things and I really appreciate that so thank you so much for being here and for sharing this with all of us and our audience and um I look forward to hopefully being able to come listen to Black Pearl That would be wonderful to come, to come hear you all play at some point, but thank you so much for being here.
2: Oh, you're so kind. Thank (laughs) you very much.
0: Jerry Lynn Johnson, founder and artistic director of the Black Pearl Chamber Orchestra and founder of DEI Arts Consulting.
1: Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra.
0: Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams.
1: Our audio engineer and mixer is Nathan Maslick with video and audio editing by Shoreline Media.
0: Thank you for listening and see you next time.